Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the events that caught the world's attention from West Africa's Sahel region was the kidnapping of 200 young women from the Chibok region in northern Nigeria. On the five-year anniversary of that event, Nigeria's president once again promised to find the 100 young women who are still missing from that event five years ago. The episode points to the enduring issue of violence against civilians in the Sahel, and that violence is way up recently. In the last five months, 5,000 people were killed in the border areas of Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. I know this because the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project is keeping track. With me is Kleena Raleigh. She is the Executive Director of the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Thanks for joining us, Kleena. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, Tell us a little more about the project because I was really fascinated by the website. It had so many details about uh, conflict in this region and great graphs. It was very easy to read. Um, How did this thing start? So it was my PhD project many years ago uh, where I tracked conflict in the Central and East African regions uh, from 1960 onwards. And then um, about 2008, about 10 years ago, the World Bank required some up-to-date disaggregated data on violence and so sponsored the project to uh, become much more up-to-date and focus on 1999 into the present. And so now we, oh, sorry, we are a global data set with disaggregated data that we release each week on almost every world region. We've just started a pilot for the United States today, in fact. Oh, no kidding. Very interesting. The, um, st- the, the uptick in violence in the Sahel region, though, is really striking. And you see it in every graph. It just goes right up. Um, in the last five months, 5,000 people were killed in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Uh, who is doing the killing here? So there's a bit of a mix of uh, agents producing this much disorder within the Sahel Belt. One of them is certainly international Islamist actors who have found the Sahel to be a a very um, easy area to operate, and we can discuss those reasons. But there's also quite a lot of intra-communal violence, which is communities with effectively local militias fighting against each other. The problem is that these two different and distinct forms of violence have started to meld in that Islamist actors, especially JNIM, Um, which is kind of a consortium of of Islamist rebel actors, have started to co-opt these local struggles into their own, and they've become much more deadly as a result. It it seems like it's going on in three different countries here, and I know that France intervened uh, with 5,000 troops and was cooperating with a whole bunch of other countries in the region to uh, keep the peace, and that was that's been going on for like five years now, six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what happened to that? Are they not? Uh, is that not working? Well, the the French intervened, especially in the Malian situation in 2012. You may remember it was a bit of a perfect storm in 2012, where there was both a northern insurgency, which is pretty cyclical. The Tuaregs often rebelled, but it had an Islamist. Um, let's say, branding this time in 2012, plus um, Algerian forces coming in from the north made that much worse. And you also had a coup in Mali at that time. In fact, um, there were they've been effectively three different leaders in Mali since that time. And the coup plus the northern insurgency and with the fact that many of the elites within Mali were benefiting from the violence happening in the north, the French intervened in what was going to be effectively a very dangerous situation that 
if it had escalated, and it did escalate. There was a declaration of a separate state of Azawad in 2012, and then the violence has effectively been able to spread. The, the notable thing about the most recent violence is that it has been in Niger, which is a neighbor to Mali, but had been relatively stable up to this point, which was surprising given that almost all of its neighbors were in some form of turmoil. Is, was there a significant amount of state control there that has collapsed? So not in Niger. I think that they're st- certainly trying to control what is effectively many border regions that have different forms of trouble. But in Mali, as in many African states, especially large African states in the Sahel, the state has an indirect form of control in that they will often control the capital areas and many of the wealthier areas of the state, but they will have an indirect relationship with authorities in areas in the periphery so that effectively if you control it so that it doesn't cause us too much too many problems we'll leave you alone but that broke down in Mali and elsewhere uh, especially Burkina Faso in the last few years and uh, so why is it breaking down now why is that happening well if you take an example of Burkina Faso you may also remember that in 2014 there were many Um, massive protests, in fact, against the ruling party. And there have been seven heads of state in Burkina Faso since 2014. And in Mali, as I mentioned, there's been uh, quite a few. And of course, in Sudan, there's now been um, a replacement of, of the regime of some sort. And what you have is that these are domestic politics. It's typical autocratic politics. But what happens is that once that very strong power in the center becomes unstable, these Islamist groups were able to effectively take the opportunity to create a bit of a crisis in other parts of the state. And they did so very successfully. When people... Please, go ahead. I'm talking with Kalina Raleigh. She's the executive director of the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. And we're talking about some of their data about the Sahel region, which shows that over the last five months, 5,000 people were killed in the border region of Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. You know, I'm kind of struck by how little people care about the Sahel region. I mean, yeah. if this was even the Horn of Africa and Somalia, people would people would notice, people would care. Um, if this were happening, obviously, in Europe, people would care if 5,000 people mm-hmm. were killed. Uh, why don't people care about the Sahel? Well, I think you're being very you're being very gracious now to most people's level of caring about quite a lot of conflicts. I mean, I think that that people's interpretation of Africa is that it's constantly in a state of disorder. And that is true for certain countries and certainly not true for others. Mali was not um, in a state of disorder before 2012. And as I mentioned, Niger certainly isn't. But I think that there is a bit of an exhaustion with the typical story coming out about conflict regions, which effectively is that there is a group of people with autocratic tendencies who overtake the state. And when they fall... There's both a crisis at the center and it unleashes a bit of a crisis in the other areas of the state. There, It seems to not have a solution or a ready solution. And so people might get a bit, um, well, a, a, a bit kind of tired of hearing that, that story. Although it, I mean, there's certainly things that can be done. I mean, the Boko Haram story is one that captured people's attention and then it didn't. And people, you know, really don't pay attention and don't, you know, make make any kind of effort to to get these girls back that caused such an international uproar. 
Yeah, that's an that's an excellent point. I think one of the really surprising things about the Chibok situation was that even within Nigeria, there was a reluctance to talk about it. In fact, people who you would regularly protest, family members, etc., to get back these girls were being treated quite badly, often on the streets of uh, northern and southern Nigeria, um, about bringing this up and kind of reminding people of the level of instability that they live with. And the uh, enduring nature of some of these militias and armed actors, um, that's uh, that's troubling. I guess uh, there's no no one who wants to go in there and change that situation. They, that um, you know, even the United, I know the United States has some drones there, uh, has some interest in Burkina Faso, but on the whole, it's not. It doesn't seem as concerned uh, as it does about a place like uh, Somalia. Well, that's an excellent point, and I think that one of the one of the ways to think about this is kind of old versus new conflicts, or the way that might be phrased. In a place like Somalia, you have a very traditional conflict. You have a rebel group that is uh, operating nationwide and effectively working against the government and international partners that the government has, even though the government actually has very little control outside of the capital. In a place like the Sahel, you have a very typical African story, which is that many of these groups started as militias or gangs of political players, political figures. And so they grew either through impunity or through ideology or most likely just through opportunity. They grew to become a much bigger issue in their domestic politics than was expected at the time. And so you have a massive gang problem across African states because so many small gangs have been allowed to proliferate. And the market for their labor, if you will, has become distorted. Well, what is the solution or ideas to get the violence down in Sahel? Because it seems unfair that civilians are taking the brunt of this violence. It's it's not the battles uh, don't seem to be as big as the violence against civilians. Yeah, there's been a massive increase in attacks targeting civilians. So over 2,000 of the fatalities have been directly against those civilians in, in the recent months. So I would say that the first thing is to is to take these domestic politics seriously, which is that somebody's benefiting from this violence. And so once you're able to um, once you're able to reinforce an order that is not necessarily benefiting from violence but can benefit from authority, uh, especially central state authority, you can you can dampen down some of this performance violence, especially against civilians. So groups will often attack civilians in order to kind of um, in order to to show that they are that they are part of the game, if you will, they're part of this um, they're part of this conflict culture, and so what has happened is that because you have so many new actors operating in the Sahel, you have quite a lot of attacks on civilians. But if you're able to show even a modicum of state authority in these places, then I would say that those attacks would go down. But many of these states, and this is why France and the U.S. are involved. Many of these states are not quite able to project their authority because of domestic problems, especially located in the capital. Well, is the solution more uh, French and U.S. ability to project power then? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> but um, but the, the solution is, I think, that we, we both have to understand the incentives of politicians to incite violence and to benefit from it and to sanction those that do. I think quite a lot of the the current thinking around violence is that it's pushed by poverty or lack of democracy or 
even the climate. And none of those can account for the variation that we're seeing on the ground and that we see over time. What we see on the ground and over time is that the violence is being pushed by people who benefit from it. These politicians, as I mentioned, who can compete with each other violently in order to attain better power or more power to wield. And so if we're able to accurately locate who is in fact encouraging this violence and sanction them and promote better leaders, then we would, I think, have a much better future in the Sahel land. All right. Uh, What kind of sanction are you talking about? Well, so for example, in, in some countries, it is illegal to run or it's illegal to be involved in the political process if you've been associated with a violent group. Even Northern Ireland, in fact, was um, was something, had some sort of system like this, whereby you were effectively considered to be, um, an, an, uh, it's not admissible, effectively, if you were if you were seen to have used violence to promote your political agenda. And I think that far more of that needs to be used within not just African states, but states in general, so that people can be assured that people will not benefit from violence several times over. Uh, Is France, uh, what should they do? Should they get out of the area if they're not going to be uh, helpful to, to the solution? Are they harmful? Well, I think that the French and the U.S. are far more effective at fighting um, Islamists especially than uh, than the local forces are, or the, even the national forces are. Um, so many of these Islamist groups have been able have benefited from several things, not only international support, but also um, technical support from just working together. They're much more cooperative than are the state forces. So it seems to me that if international forces were not to lend a hand to national forces, there would be um, there would be a real vacuum in the ability to to hold hold off some of the offences from these um, prolific uh, Islamist actors. That said, I do think we're seeing kind of peak Islamism as a motivator in the Sahel. Um, and uh, it's unlikely that they will have more successes. It's likely. I I certainly hope this isn't their new threshold, but it's unlikely that they'll grow. Why do you think that? Why would this be peak Islamism? Well, because I think we're seeing that throughout the world, not just because of the the downgrading of ISIS, but we're seeing that this ideology, which had such a prolific effect on, um, on how groups branded themselves in the last 10 years, has proven itself not to live up to many of the let's say, the standards that its followers or certainly its supporters expected. They often, of course, attack other Muslims, but that they don't actually have an agenda past creating crisis. Um, And that crisis was often, of course, economically beneficial to to the people who supported them. But I think that that agenda has now run its course. Well, does that mean that you think this uh, uptick in violence in the Sahel has run its course? Or does that um, not really compute with all the different competing local militias? Um, Is this something that just burns itself out? Well, that's a really good point. Unfortunately, there seems to be no, no, um, no effective no effective barrier to Islamism as a motivating concept, especially for the groups that already exist. There seems to be no barrier for, to, for them to simply perpetuate and continue what they're doing. My concern is mostly that 
quite a lot of this uptick, I believe, is driven by this intercommunal violence and the co-option that I mentioned earlier from the Islamist groups. That can continue for quite a while. How many people from the Sahel region are checking out your website at the Armed Conflict Location and Avet Data Project? Um, I don't have exact numbers about how many people check it out, but I do know that both, of course, the French and the U.S., especially the U.S., are active users of these data and share that share it with uh, the governments of the region and, and any any of those concerns that they can have effectively some sort of open sharing relationship with. So these data are certainly informed by local groups within the Sahel. We have an excellent network of people who report to us. And of course, that information is also fed back so that it can be beneficial to people there. Yeah. And it's amazingly detailed on the maps and everything. You've got incidences and who's doing it uh, where all over the region. Yes. So um, Africa was the place that ACLED started, but we've now expanded into the Middle East and South and Southeast Asia, etc. And so we do try to make sure that in every single uh, map or graph or or analysis we, we provide that we have detailed information about the domestic politics and the specifics of the violence. Kalina Raleigh is executive director of the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project called ACLED, and you can look at it on the internet and see amazing statistics about what's going on with violence in the Sahel region and elsewhere. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kalina, and talking about uh, the top tick in violence in the Sahel. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll have our Global Notes segment where we look at international music and we'll think through some music from France. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. That's the sound of a choir performing outside the fire-charred Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and today on Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson. We're going to talk about some of the musical background of Notre Dame and use that as a jumping-off point for talking about French music of the moment. Hey, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. How you doing? Glad to be here, um, even though it's a difficult kind of musical occasion, but... Um, we're going to be sharing some music, actually, that was created in that space of Notre Dame. And many of the cathedrals throughout Europe and even the Americas were spaces where specific music was created for that specific space to transcend, to elevate. And Notre Dame is no exception. And because of its ancient history, it actually is credited potentially with the um, creation of polyphonic music or music where several voices combined may be the basis for our harmonies today 
potentially the basis for musical notation because at that point you have to you had to deal with when another voice might come in and how long it was supposed to last. Some people uh, wrote about it saying it's the birthplace of of a certain kind of music itself as we know it. So this is there's only two composers' names that we know from that period from the late 1100s, early 1200s. There was a Notre Dame school that created. Uh, music in and around the cathedral for this space, which, by the way, has a, a second, second reverb. So the music had to deal with that. And this is one of those two composers that we know, Leonin, and this is an Alleluia from that period. some music that originated, oh, in 1200 at the Notre Dame <laughs> Cathedral. I'm here with Catalina Maria Johnson, and we're talking about Notre Dame and the music of France. Uh, that is really, uh, it's a great sound. I'm glad that um, so much music was developed there. Uh, it's, it's it's something that you kind of forget when you're visiting. Right, and uh, this is actually an Easter Alleluia, so I thought it might be particularly lovely. Uh, as we approach Easter weekend, um, but we're going to actually not stay. <laughs> stay in the Middle, in, in the middle, middle Ages. No, we're not staying in the Middle Ages for long, uh, because again, there's uh, writing the uh, credits, those polyphonic chants from Notre Dame as the basis of some of the harmonizing that we know today. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to take a take a uh, listen to Parisian sounds that employ harmonies and. This is three, so we're jumping ahead like, what, uh, 800 centuries <laughs> <laughs> to today's Paris. And this is uh, L.E.J., three young women with a classical background. They're, they're all string players. Uh-huh. And uh, they uh, kind of won a contest and became YouTube stars and do some just lovely kind of pop vocal harmonizing. L.E.J., and this comes from the first names of Lucia, Elisa, and Juliet, Paris-based. Ah, si toi je t'invite, j'ai un jeu qui pourrait te plaire, repoussons nos limites. Si tu ne choisis pas, je te resserre. Ah, si toi je t'invite, j'ai un jeu qui pourrait te plaire, repoussons nos limites. Si tu ne choisis pas, je te re. Dis-moi ce que tu préfères, être le sosie officiel de Trump, le sous-officier d'Hitler. Dis-moi et tant pis si tu te trompes, oui, dis-moi ce que tu préfères. Bouffer de la terre, tomber de haut, ou attendre patiemment la guerre, et qu'il bafoue nos idéaux. La vie défile vite, on s'épuise à trop se battre, rien, on défile vide, acrobatie. Ah, 
And that's L.E.J. They are harmonizing and string players from France. They sound terrific. And they are. And again, you know, backing it up uh, 900 years or so, uh, there is uh, some proof that 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 kind of harmonizing evolved from those polyphonic chants created in Notre Dame. So we're kind of celebrating the history of that architecture, that space, the music it created, taking it a, a little f- further forward. I looked up the definition of polyphonic chants. <laughs> it, it consists of two or more simultaneous lines of independent melody. Well, that's uh, these are not as... That's getting creative. That's getting creative. And again, the basis of musical notation and some other things, uh, potentially. Um, but the sounds of Paris are not just... Are, are much more extensive than what we think of. I, we don't have enough time, but there's uh, like a very significant, of course, West African population, very significant Cuban population, and a very significant Algerian population. So I thought if we were talking about the sounds of Paris and vocal harmonies, we shouldn't leave out uh, the international peoples that we don't, that are a part of Paris too. And this is an Algerian, French-Italian vocalist composer, Inès Metz. And she's Berber. She brings all that together. Born in Paris, spent a great part of her life in uh, the Berber part of Algeria, but uh, is based in Paris. And uh, she has some lovely music. And this is from her album, Beyond the Trance. Ines Menzel and her album Beyond the Trance. I'm feeling the the Algerian Berber rhythms, and then there's all sorts of other stuff going on. There's right. jazzy things. There's well, a, that's yeah. a, again, you know, this is a Paris that's influenced uh, artists, and the artists have influenced them back depending on their heritage. So you definitely, if you walk through the streets of Paris, you're going to get sort of the chanson, the French uh, sounds, but you're also going to get uh, the sounds of the Algerian people, the sounds of uh, the West African, and like I said, even Cuban. There's, uh, We just don't have time for it. Also, <laughs> I noticed that album was uh, produced by Justin Adams, who yep. I had in here once years ago, and he's uh, worked with a lot of people, Robert Plant, and but he is a global producer of music. Uh, yeah, he's wonderful, and he, and he kind of rocked out her sound, I think, very nicely in that album. So we're going to um, go back to kind of classic Paris. This is an artist that was actually um, born in Tours, but actually has a whole album of songs about Paris. And she brings in a lot of classic um, kind of the uh, manouche, uh, gypsy manouche jazz kind of sound, the chanson sound. This is Zaz, and this is a song to Paris. 
That's Zaz singing about Paris. I'm Jerome McDonald here with Catalina Maria Johnson. Here on Global Notes, our look at international music. We're nosing around some of the harmonies around Paris, around Notre Dame, and the music there. I have to say, with all as we listen to these contemporary harmonies by Zazen, as I explored the topic of polyphony and how this music was created the, in the first chance that overlaid um, an, a voice and kind of intertwined it, which may be the basis of contemporary harmony, was that not everybody liked it because it was supposed to be sacred. And there was a bishop that actually like wrote a treatise on how awful this was and how it had to be kept this uh, female modulation, which astonishes and enervates the souls of listeners, had to be kept in moderation. Just like Elvis's hips. <laughs> Just like uh, harmonies had to be, and polyphony had to be like toned down, lest it uh, take the soul that, away from... The, this is almost how you know you've got good music, right? <laughs> I mean, if somebody wants to ban it, somebody then it's got to be ban good. It. Somebody wanted to ban uh, some, some of that or tone it down in moderation only. So um, our last piece is uh, very different. It's actually on, on an organ, and it's on the organ, the one and only which appears to have survived the fire at Notre Dame, and it may be the last piece recorded there for a while. Yeah, that's, I mean, I was amazed when I looked at the pictures of Notre Dame and saw um, wooden things sitting on the floor of the cathedral that were not burned at all. Right. Uh, and anybody who looked at the pictures on television would think, wow, everything in that building is charred to pieces. 
But there were things that, that looked like they were untouched, and the organ was one of them. The organ was one of them. Um, the uh, musician in this piece, the uh, organist, said it's a, the organ's a little dusty, but it <laughs> appears to have survived. And uh, this is uh, an album, all Bach pieces. It's called Bach to the Future, and it's Olivier Latry, and he's playing, this was recorded, I think, in January, released just last month, and potentially the last... Uh, piece recorded on that organ for some time. What's interesting, again, is that's where I read about the uh, seven-second reverb is, you know, Bach is centuries later, so they were dealing with music that was not created for seven-second reverb, and he had to really be careful about his uh, choices. So that's uh, those seven seconds, you know, elevated the music. And this is actually Olivier Latry on the organ of Notre Dame. There it is, the last recorded organ music in Notre Dame for some time. Uh, Bach there, Catalina Maria Johnson here for the Global Notes, and I understand you're going to keep the Parisian theme going on Beat Latino this yeah, weekend this on Vocalo? Weekend, uh, this weekend, I'll, since uh, it's Beat Latino, of course, it'll be the Latin sounds of Paris, the French-Cuban community, and others. <laughs> sounds terrific. Catalina Maria Johnson joins us for Global Notes here on Wednesdays, and uh, you would be wise to keep up with her on uh, social Social media at Catalina Maria J, and she's on Twitter and Facebook all the time. And makes you <laughs> when she travels, she makes you feel like you you went there yourself. Thanks, for, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Jerome. Always a pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the continuing protests in Algeria. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The protests that started in Algeria in February seem to be entering yet another phase. Yesterday, Algeria's military says that they are considering all options and that time is running out. 
Let's talk about what's going on in Algeria with Yuri No. She's a postdoctoral research fellow in the Middle East Initiative at Harvard, uh, Harvard's Belfer Center. Thanks for joining us, Yuri. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, did this... Was this as ominous as it sounded yesterday when I was reading the quotes from the military, things like all options are open in the pursuit of overcoming different difficulties and finding solutions to the crisis as soon as possible? Um, Is that ominous? It is, yes and no, um, in a way that who, what kind of ways they are discussing it is not clear yet. I would say nothing is clear um, who will be the new president, what steps they are exactly thinking of. One thing that is clear for sure is that who will be the next president is existentially linked to um, the military. And so it will it's not just that ruling elites themselves are not agreeing with, with each other, like in the military and outside the military, but they will not easily give up control. Now, when we heard the news last week that there was go- they were going to move up presidential elections to July 4th, um, what, what is the strategy there? I mean, it seems like um, the military uh, – it seems like a pretty good situation for the military to ram their candidate down somebody's throat, if I can put it that way. <laughs> so we first have to talk a little bit about who's really in charge. So – it's, it may sound like that it's just a group of military men who are in power, but actually it's a little more complicated than that. So the facade democracy that has been in place in Algeria, it actually involves a group of exclusive circle of military men as well as politicians and businessmen. And the problem with this, what they call le pouvoir, it, the power, is that there are lots of conflicting interests that um, they are, I mean, when they postponed the elections, I think they were hoping to come up with a new guy who would replace Bouteflika, the former president. But it just, they just have too much at stake. Yet they are, there are these, I'm imagining these intense internal debates going on at this moment um, within the ruling circle on what to do and who should be the um, successor to Bouteflika. Well, they couldn't decide that while Bouteflika was alive and or was, <laughs> was in power. And, uh, you know, what, what's, uh, what, how are they going to do it now? That is a great point. So Bouteflika, as you, um, a lot of you may already know, he suffered a stroke in 2013, yet he was reelected in 2014. And he hasn't been in public since pretty much 2013, yet he was going to run for re-election again if it wasn't for the mass protests. So, um, again, I think that's just ha- that just shows how divided the ruling elites, the ruling coalition is, that there is a lot at stake here, yet they are still um, debating on what to do. So one possibility is that this has come up in the past, the inner circle elites, they have talked about putting two or more candidates forward um, and possibly letting the people decide through elections. So nonetheless, this just shows that whoever the new guy will be, the new president will be, it will be someone that is pre-approved by the ruling ruling elites. And all the names I've seen floated (laughs) <laughs> have ages after them that uh, seem to be in their 70s or things like that. I, I yep. you know, I don't know who they are, but they seem to be like really old guard people. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so the ruling elites in Algeria, they have pretty much been, been in power since um, independence. So the root of the ruling elites that, that lie in the liberation movements um, that fought against France uh, since, and they have been in power since independence in 1962. So these people you've seen on um, many, many names that are considered as like potential um, next president, they have been in, I mean, they're those, they're people associated with this um, move this group of people who have been in power since independence. Well, let's flip it around and talk about what protesters want. And when they, mm-hmm. they say, well, we would like to see a different kind of uh, civilian politician be in charge of the elections and, and oversee the elections, what does that mean? So um, protesters definitely want to see major changes, not just Bouteflika stepping down and just the, we seeing um, new people still associated with the old guard coming into power. Um, so I would say the first and foremost, what um, what spurred all these protests are um, economic concerns. So um, Algeria, there are in Algeria, despite being an oil and gas exporter, um, it suffers from lack of jobs, unemployment, especially youth unemployment. Um, keep in mind that the median age in Algeria is 28, um, yet that half of these youth cannot find jobs, low growth in general, and um, paired with corruption and cronyism um, that have, and with those few people uh, related to Le Pouvoir, controlling most of country's wealth. So what protesters want is change. Yet another um, thing that is weakening the demands of the protesters is that the opposition is divided and there is no unite. They cannot stand rally behind a unified leader. Um, There are. um, So people when people see people see change uh, for now, they have seen like they've They've seen a new prime minister, a new interim president, but these are all people um, who have been a long ter- long-time allies of Bouteflika. So is, are there likely candidates, though, that have uh, governing experience that they can point to? Is, or, is the, or is the ruling class so tight that, they just, that there's not a lot of options? So there are not a lot of options. Um, I don't know if you're referring to a new candidate that would be approved by the ruling elites or the protesters. Yeah, so not really. Um, That is is a big problem. So there are some candidates that you might have seen, like Ali Ben Fleece or um, Abdurazak Makri, who are considered, or some of the Western media have portrayed as likely opposition candidates. But if you really look at their backgrounds, even these people... Um, so Ali Ben Fleece, for example, he is in his mid-70s. He was a two-time challenger to Bouteflika in previous presidential elections. Yet, if you look at his background, he was Bouteflika's prime minister until 2003, if I'm correct. And he was affiliated with the ruling party until 2004. So yet he emerged, I mean, he had some internal disputes with Bouteflika and he emerged as an opposition candidate, and now he's talking about running for, running, standing for um, the elections. Yet he is, I mean, he could also 
be someone who the regime may approve of because he knows the people. He is a friendly face and he um, was also associated with many scandals and corruptions. Um, he's the guy who um, announced the ban on protests in Algiers in 2001 and also associated with the um, so-called Black Spring of Al- um, Algeria in 2001. So P is... Um, portraying himself as an opposition candidate, yet he I mean, might be someone who the old guard um, could approve of. And Abdul Razak Makri, he's, um, he's the leader of the MSP, the Moderate Islamist Party. Um, so he's also a longtime politician. He's not exactly a new face. And he's also portraying himself as an opposition candidate. Yet, um, I mean, protests, he may not be the new uh, face, new guy the protesters want, necessarily. I'm talking with Yuri No. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center, and we're talking about the crisis in Algeria. Protests have been going on since February. The president resigned, and uh, no one seems to know quite what is next, but um, some say that there will be elections on July 4th. Uh, now, you know, it's so interesting. This is a oil-producing country, and um, we've all seen what happened in Libya, uh, an oil-producing country that fell into chaos. Is that is uh, is that a scenario that um, is possible for Algeria? That it will uh, be in chaos. Yeah, that, that the, Libya's in that, that thing. That things break down. That you have bad elections. That people are there's contested rivalries and source different sources of power and and then you've something chaotic like that so it's not completely comparable to the libyan case because with libya there was um foreign um nato intervention um into in um um in 2011 and 12 yet um algeria could it could it could there be a chaos um yes and no so one reason why I would say no is the civil war they did suffer um, starting in that started in um, 1992, what Algerians called the Black Decade. So um, although a lot of the media sources have have um, ran this narratives that oh is the Arab Spring coming to Algeria. Um, Algeria, Algerians would say that they had their own Arab Spring in um, the late 1980s when um, the country did um, amend its constitution and held its first multi-party elections. And when the opposition um, Islamist party, it looked like they were going to win the legislative elections, the military stepped in and they descended into a decade-long bloody civil war where 200 people died. So they have this memory. A lot of the population, yeah, two hundred thousand, yeah. Yes, a lot of the people still have this vivid in their memory, and um, this is one of the reasons why we see some of this restraint from the protesters and the military side right now. So um, the people are um, careful. The protesters are careful not to give the military an excuse to. Um, increase uh, or or um, staying away, away from escalation of violence and the military at the same time the decade-long civil war all was costly for the military as well not just for the people so they're also very careful in um, trying not to provoke the protesters 
so I would say no, it's not. It doesn't look likely right now that Libya is, or Algeria is going to become the next Libya. Well, what do the outside actors uh, think about this? Because uh, this is an oil-producing country. People um, who are buying their oil probably think that it's a good idea that uh, that they, they stay stable. Uh, do they have interests here? Are they pressing any interests? Um, so we know that countries like France had um, always had exerted some influence in Algerian politics. And not just politics, um, also trade and um, as a source, a source of energy. Algeria does. Algeria isn't a huge oil exporter, but um, it does account for, I think, 10 percent of um, Europe's gas, um, gas imports. And because of the former colonial ties, again, um, I think um, President French President Emmanuel Macron has um, applauded Bouteflika's move to step down and I think described it as it could be a new phase in Algeria's democracy. At the same time, lots of Algerians would be skeptical that of this. Um, a lot of Algerians I've talked to have argued that um, the French just want stable Algeria. They may not actually want to see um, a revolution or real democratization that may um, bring in some instability in the short term. So, yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) Yuri No is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University's Belfer Center. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening in Algeria with the protests that have been going on since February. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, it's going to be Thursday. We'll have some uh, terrific uh, global activism action for you, as we do most Thursdays. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Uh, actually, the Mueller report is going to come out Thursday, and we'll, we'll talk about that, or NPR will talk about that. So that's definitely what's going to happen tomorrow. Stay tuned for that tomorrow on WBEZ. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.